0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: When I was a kid, I used to get told, why are you trying to talk white? what does that mean? I'm just speaking. Or when white kids get told, why are you trying to act black? Well, what does that mean? There isn't a way to be or behave that's connected to a color in my view, but I think there are some cultural norms that exist. And I I wouldn't say that I was being disingenuous, but I did feel there were parts of my culture and parts of myself that I couldn't bring to the table because they might be judged negatively. Now, whether or not I felt that was correct or not, obviously I didn't and still don't. My name is Kenyatta Nelson, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to
0: Modern Minorities.
2: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
0: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
0: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model
0: minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On
2: today's show, we're talking to Kenyatta Nelson. Kenyatta is Chief Brand Officer at N Brown Group in Liverpool, in the UK. Sharon, what would you think?
0: I loved him. I thought he was so... I feel like we really connected over the airwaves, across the countries, across cultures, and across the pond.
2: Yeah, we worked together briefly years ago and loosely stayed in touch. And we reconnected recently independent of the show and found out we both, you know, because we're both kind of locked in time of the version of ourselves when we met 20 years ago. And I was like, you have a kid? You have a kid? (laughs) What? (laughs) You, You live where? You live where? And yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I think his lens is unique, as unique as any of ours is, but fellow Southerner, you know? Mm-hmm. But
0: but like just very deep, like it's, it, it was clear that he had either just naturally is very reflective or kind of always looks for a deeper truth and a, a more meaningful answer. And I think that really came out in the stories that he told about his own experiences and how he was talking about what he hoped for his own child who's biracial and growing up in the UK, which is very different from what he experienced himself in the U S and just kind of how he connected that, that all together with his life experience.
2: Yeah. And I mean, he called it out as anthropology, you know, his way he looks at the world, the way he looks at how his father experienced the world at a car dealership or the way he will or won't have a conversation with his son as he gets older in the UK, not in America. You know, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with our friend Kenyatta.
1: Kenyatta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sharon and Raman, new and old friends.
0: New and old. <laughs> new and old. Mainly old friends. I'm
1: looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it.
2: <laughs> the weird universe overlaps between the three of us. We'll see if we can uncover any of those oh, in the show. Oh, man.
1: Oh, man. I, I can't wait. <laughs> okay. So, Kenyatta, I think in
2: the marketing world, you're kind of a famous person. Anyone who's ever worked with you remembers you. And let's think the whole Kenyatta fan club's listening to this. But in all seriousness, a lot of people don't know as much about you before you were the cool fashion icon, GQ, blah, blah, blah. Can you tell us a story from when you were a kid? Yeah,
1: yeah. Look, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was a shy kid growing up. Super skinny, never really got into trouble. My father's six foot seven, right? So you don't really talk back to a guy who's six foot seven, played basketball and American football. I have to say American football, by the way, because I live in the UK and if (laughs) I say football, people will think soccer. And if I say soccer, people in Europe will think I'm ignorant. So I have to say American football. Can
2: I tell you something really quick? By the way, someone I met indirectly when you and I were working together decades ago, there's a Roman Segal in the UK and- him and I get, and he's in marketing and PR, and there's like literally, and like he just launched a podcast too, ironically, and I literally get biz dev outreach for his podcast to me because people think I'm him, and I'm like, no, he's the cooler one, not me.
0: Anyway, so cool, so <laughs> funny. We're gonna have him on the show, right? Isn't that
1: yeah, the plan? actually,
2: yeah, yeah. He just had a kid, so I'm not two weeks for interviewing him.
1: Brilliant. Anyway, sorry. Brilliant. So Kenyatta is a so let me. Cool. Yeah. Let me give you a, squ- a quick story. And it's about my name, actually. So I was named after Jomo Ken- a guy named Jomo Kenyatta, who is a famous former president of Kenya. So the way this story goes is my mom and dad had friends, last names are the Leepers, L-E-E-P-E-R. And they had a daughter, an older daughter named Rhonda, you know, kind of a normal name. When their son was born, they had a book of African names and they decided to name their son Atiba, Atiba Leeper. And he was born before me. My parents heard the name. They were close friends. And my parents thought, oh, very cool, a Pan-African name. When Kenyatta comes along, we should give him one of those as well. They looked through the name book, found the name Kenyatta, K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A. And Kenyatta is generally a surname, right, in, in Africa. My mother loved the name, but thought the A at the end was feminine. And so she just decided to change it. So my name, K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-E, is phonetically incorrect, which is why throughout my entire life, every single person I've ever met has murdered my name. Because when you look at it in trying- Yeah. yeah. Kenyate. <laughs> Kenyate. You just, it, does, it doesn't make any sense, but that's because mom decided to get creative.
2: Yeah, but dude, so my name, oh man, we might have to uncover something on this show. My name is mispronounced all the time. And when I- Tell people how to pronounce it correctly, and I don't care. Even though I hear my dad yelling in his accent, how to say it correctly, because <laughs> he's done that. But people, especially Asians, like over when I've lived overseas, never. But Americans are like, yeah, but that's not how it's smelled. I'm like, it's an Indian name. It's going to be <laughs> pronounced. The phonetics are different around the world.
1: Yeah. First of all, this. this so let's. It's un- but, and you, and you like mispronounce my name, my friend. By the way. <laughs> well, yeah. Don't blame me. Growing up in the U.S., one of the interesting things about that is when you get the rebuttal. That's not how it looks, right? Or that's yeah. not how it's spelled. Yeah. So in French, the word yes, we, is spelled O U I. That isn't right. like the way it's spelled either, right? But because in the States, we learn phonetically, we just assume that every word should look exactly how it sounds and vice versa, when the vast majority of languages in the world do not work that way. You wanna hear my trick?
0: What's the trick? I want to
2: hear it. If it's a French name, or an Indian name, or a Latin name, or a word, put on your best fake accent to say the word. And eight times out of ten, you'll get it right. Really? If you you put on your Indian accent and say, Raman, you're going to say it right. Really? It works, man. Fake it till you make it. I'm not saying keep using the Indian accent and offend everyone. Just for the word. When you meet Sundar, you say, oh, it's really nice to meet you, Sundar. You say it with an Indian accent, you get it right. Yes. Or maybe
1: practice it in the bathroom.
2: <laughs> well, no, because the accent subconsciously, it's almost like a stereotype and an exaggeration of all the things the language does that's funny to our ears, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And so that's literally the thing that's funny to your ears that you don't want to say is what makes you say ramen or kenyate, right? Yes, right. yes, yes. Right. And I don't even know how to do an African accent. I, like, I haven't perfected that.
1: But to your point, you almost prime yourself It's a primer for your brain. Before it engages, and to your point, it gives you a natural lean or tendency into the correct pronunciation. Hopefully, hopefully. I'm not convinced that that works every time. I've
0: never tried that, but I'm I'm definitely going to try next time. <laughs> you you got to remember to turn that the just, accent off though for the just, rest of
1: the conversation, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. you will
2: really offend someone.
0: <laughs> it just seems like it would perpetuate stereotypes, but I will. Well,
2: all my European play. friends, and yeah, you've done some time in Europe. I love it when they do their American accent and everything goes flat, high. I'm
1: (laughs) rumming. What's crazy. So I've now been out of the US for 10-ish years, maybe a little more than 10 years. I left the States working with Procter & Gamble to move to Geneva, lived in Switzerland for a little over five years, moved to the UK and have now been in the UK for about the same amount of time. When I go back to the US, particularly where I go back home to Charlotte, people don't think that I'm from Charlotte. And also, the American accent has started, particularly in the South, has started to sound different to me. I notice it more now that I've been away from it for so long. It's really, it's really interesting the way language and accents work. I always ask myself, do people hear their own accent? And the answer is obviously no, but you can. You can, because now I hear the American accent. I never heard it before. But when I go what back to What does home, it like, sound like? Hear. What's it oh, sound God. like? It's a bit annoying, to be honest. Really? <laughs> <laughs> is it because it's slower or? It is in many ways. Not Look, I'm going to make a gross generalization, but it is in many ways the way that it gets bastardized by people who don't speak it. The use of the word like in between every two words. In some instances, the high pitchness or the pitchiness of the American accent.
0: Yeah, the pitchiness. I get that. Mm-hmm.
1: The unwillingness or inability to, and even I catch myself doing it lots of times, we do not use the word, we do not use the letter T. It depends on where you're from. But Wait,
2: explain that one.
1: Explain what's, that one. Yeah, what's the lesser T? In the South, where I grew up, people would not say Kenyatta. They would say Kenyatta.
0: Oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: I do that. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because the T is, it, when used literally,
1: it's a hard T. It's very hard. You
0: just said literally.
1: Yes. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> he got in my head.
1: So, literally. So, but it's, it's crazy. I have a little boy, four years old, born in the UK. Brit through and through. Sounds like a southern UK. Sounds, sounds like he grew up in the southern part of the UK because his mom is from Surrey, which is right outside of London. So he has, for lack of a better kind of designation, he sounds like he's from London. When he says what I would say, water, when he says water, it's a very hard T. When I try to say it the way that he says it, I find it very difficult. I find it almost, I have to try really hard to get the T out. It's hilarious to me because he now will come up to me and mom and mom will say, how does Dada say it? And he says, Water. <laughs> it said, how, do, how does Mama say it? Water.
0: <laughs> your four-year-old is more proper than yeah, you. Are. Yeah,
1: w- way more. He is. He is significantly more articulate than I am.
0: I want to
2: ask you another question about your kid. Actually, we usually save the kid stuff for the end. But you have a funny name. I have a funny name. I have a four-year-old, and that influenced kind of what I named my kid. What was the calculus there? I don't even know. What, I don't know. And you don't have to say his name. But what was
1: the calculus there on naming your kid? So I'll, I'll share it. I mean, it's not a big deal. He's got no social media footprint.
0: Not yet. Not until not the yet, show.
1: Not, not yet. He's going to blow up. Exactly. <laughs> Cash those college checks. Exactly. He's an influencer now. So his, his name is Zion. Z-I-O-N. Listen to me saying
0: You Z-I-O-N. said Z. Oh my gosh. Uh, Who are uh, you?
1: I yeah, I know. Clearly I'm an imposter. Foreigner. Exactly. I'm a <laughs> migrant. This show's for Americans. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so his name is Zion. That was done intentionally because we wanted something that was... So our criteria was we wanted it to be unique, number one. We wanted it to... This is going to sound really strange and very parenty. We wanted it to work at baby stage, toddler stage, adolescent stage, and adult stage. So there were lots of names that we liked, but they worked for kids, but didn't work for adults, or they worked for adults, but didn't work for kids, so for example, we toyed with the name Xavier or Xavier. Before baby, Xavier sounds scary. Sorry for all the Xaviers out there, by the way. But we thought, mm, not quite. But we centered on Zion. We like the, the sound of the name. We quite like kind of the nickname ZZ. But then we, his middle name is Ellis. And so his initials spell Zen, Z-E-N. Did you do I, that on purpose? We didn't. We didn't. It didn't dawn on us until after when we were writing his name down just to see kind of how it looked as nerdy parents do. And I looked at it and thought, wait a second, his initials are Zen. Now he's not Zen (laughs) at all. He will be
0: one day. He will. I have faith in him.
1: But I will say he is like most kids, right? A reflection of their parents. But we are very, very lucky because in his own kind of maturation and development, he is such a sweet boy. He is genuinely, he's kind in ways that I never was. In an unsolicited way, he will walk into a room where I'm standing and tell me how he loves the shirt that I have on and think I look really nice. Or he will say to his mom, you look really beautiful. He's four. Yeah. I have no idea where he got this from. He certainly did not get it from me, (laughs) but he's kind. And I think as a parent, kindness in children it's all that you could really ever hope for and hope that he that sustained and maintained throughout the course of his life. I'm so reflective on that, given where we are culturally, from a societal standpoint, all across the world. I think empathy and kindness are things that, that we could do with a lot more of. And so to have a child who exhibits those makes me immensely proud.
2: You know, the flip side of that, I think about this a lot, my daughter's four do I want her to be the smartest? Do I want her to have the best job? No, I say I've said this before. I don't want her to be an asshole because the, I, I'm looking at it like glasses half empty because I've returned to my pessimism. Given you know around November 2016, it, something changed. I don't know what, but that's the most important thing. And it, 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 the flip side, the optimist view of it is be kind, and those are the lessons you try to show. But it's mm, mm, mm. because it,
1: yeah, it, it it is, and I think. In that context, and I'm sure we're going to start to unpack a little bit of this in the context of all the things that are going on outside of the four walls that we exist in as, as people and, and, and parents. But for me, kindness as a character trait and empathy as a way of thinking and being and living are so critically important, not just because they're the right thing to do, but because I think people who are empathetic and who are kind generally are more open. And when you are more open, I think you are, the way that you think is different. The way that you learn, I believe, fundamentally, is different and probably more effective, because you're not closed off to people, to ideas, to different ways of thinking, to different answers to potentially very difficult questions. You know, empathetic thinkers and people who are kind enough to let different views, different c- kinds and ways of thought to enter into their consciousness. I think those people, there's a level of brilliance there, in my view.
0: Where did this come from? Where did this belief come from?
1: It's an interesting question. I think it comes from a couple of different places. One is just inherently, I've always been a curious person. I was a curious kid growing up. I always wondered why people thought the way they did. It's one of the reasons why, Sharon, I got into marketing. I got into this because I I consider myself more anthropologist than I do marketeer. I love people. And I'm fascinated with people. I'm fascinated with what drives me, you, anyone else to do what they do, to make the decisions that they make. And so for me, a big part of this is just my curiosity. And curious people tend to be, at least in my experience, more open. They ask more questions. They want to get to the heart of things. And they also tend to be a bit more candid because candor drives expedience in the context of truth-telling in my view. So I think it's part of it. I think the other bit of it is what we're talking about here. I genuinely do believe that as a minority, there is a level of empathy that comes from an experience that in some cases, not all, but in some cases you walk and live through that you don't want other people to have to walk and live through. You know, something happens in a person when they recognize and realize that lots of people misunderstand them. And you recognize how it feels to be misunderstood or to be misinterpreted, or even in my case, to be feared, literally feared. I've walked the streets on countless occasions in a suit, Sharon, in a suit, not jeans and a t-shirt, and people have stopped, looked up at me, and crossed the street to avoid walking past me. So when you live through something like that, and when all the people who you know who look like you can share with you multiple stories like that. You never want any person to feel like that. You just don't. You go through life with a level of, of empathy, broadly driven from the fact that whatever those things and experiences you went through, you just don't want other people to have to live that experience in any way because you know how it felt. So I think it's a combination of those two things. It's innate and inherent in who I am, but then also the life that I've lived and the experiences that I've been through as a minority, particularly as an African-American male.
2: Yeah, I want to ask that question. You talk about people crossing the street, right? And a sensitivity, and I will by no means presume to understand what that feels like, right? I've had those street crossing moments when I was a bearded brown man post 9-11, but it's not the same, to be very clear. It's not the same. My question for you, because I've known Mm -hmm. you, you were one of the first cool work people i met in the beginning of my career you were a tall well-dressed black man and so in the halls of our fancy corporation that more or less did a lot of did and said a lot of the right things here's my question i never felt that you acted differently because you were a tall black man at our company but my question is Invariably, the same way I don't understand, the, I can't truly empathize and understand with the, the crossing the street thing. Did you ever? Because when I met you, you were so competent and sure, and you were the guy everyone wanted to talk to. But I guess, how have you changed your personality to fit in? Like, what are those things you had to do to not? Because I, I do think you're one of the most genuine people I know. But at some point, everyone makes
1: those trade offs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a great Fuji song called The Mask, and everybody at some point in their life or career has either worn it or considered putting one on. I can speak with absolute confidence and with almost absolute certainty that for me, I have absolutely won won it, and the vast majority of African-American men that I know would probably agree with me. I could say that with pretty much certainty. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that I or any other African-American male or person of color is not genuine. What it does mean is whether real or perceived, there is something that occurs that says, I need to present myself in this way because presenting myself in this way will give me the, a higher likelihood of success, successful acclimatization in the environment that I'm in.
2: Can you give us an example of something you've had to do that wasn't core to you?
1: There's a very simple one. When I started working at Procter & Gamble, the way that I would speak At work, and the way that I would speak away from work with friends of mine who were close was very different. I remember when was this? This was probably back in like mid two thousands. The U.S. became obsessed with the term ebonics. You remember this? Yeah, yeah, I do remember this. Yeah, the U.S. became obsessed with this whole kind of we need people to understand the way that African Americans speak is different, and try to educate ourselves culturally about what that means and how there is code switching in quotes, that occurs between with an African American or a person of color when they go from situation A to situation B or environment A to environment B. To a lesser or greater degree, I think that exists with lots of people for lots of different reasons. And I think speech in the context of culture, I think to equate it to what is acceptable professionally versus not accepted professionally, I think we are now learning that there's not a lot of value in that. The reality is there isn't really one way that is correct. There is. When I was a kid, I used to get told, why are you trying to talk white? And I never understood what that meant. What does that mean? I'm just just speaking. Or when white kids get told, why are you trying to act black? Well, what does that mean? There isn't a way to be or behave that's connected to a color in my view, but I think there are some cultural norms that exist. And I wouldn't say that I was being disingenuous because I never felt like that at all but I did feel like there were parts of my culture and parts of myself that I couldn't bring to the table because they might be judged negatively now whether or not I felt that was correct or not obviously I didn't and still don't It's
2: interesting you felt that on both sides of the table
1: Yeah 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 I think that that's and speaking candidly in the context of the US and America when cultural norms are so the design of those cultural norms or the cultural norms are so ingrained and are connected to the majority and they become what is acceptable and all other things are ipso facto unacceptable. That can create quite a, a difficult and challenging environment for people who have grown up in, in ways and in cultural contexts that are different. the one they're stepping into, whether that be work or school or anything else. But look, that's not a minority thing. That can be associated to gender, class, as well as ethnicity. The reality is, and I remember seeing this HR professional once told me this, the reason why as you go up an organization, people tend to look and behave more similarly it's not because there's some grand conspiracy. No, it's evolution. It's, yeah. It, it's people are tribal.
2: Survival of the fittest. If you mm-hmm. see what's successful, you clone it.
1: Yeah. And so there's this rubric called F- the FCT model, familiarity, comfort, and trust. And familiarity, comfort, and trust are all shorthand ways of talking about the tribal nature of human beings. We are familiar with, we are comfortable with, and we tend to trust things that look more like us. That's hardwired into who we are as human beings. And when we see differences, particularly visual differences, we have historically tended to use that as shorthand for different than me, i.e. not part of my tribe, i.e. not safe, can't be trusted, this kind of thing. All those things are fundamentally false and wrong, but you get how this can play out over long lengths of time and over confined and contained cultures like corporate America.
2: I had a professor once who said civilization is a rebellion against nature. And where that plays into what you just said is everything you just said about tribal, again, and tribes is a thing that humans invented, but I think you see it in the animal kingdom. But my point is what you just described is the lizard brain, right? Our base instinct taking over. You look different from me, therefore you are not me. And if civilization being civilized is a rebellion against that lizard brain, it's yes, you might not look like me that makes me uncomfortable but i'm going to get over it cuz i'm civilized
1: yes yes but this is the problem right which is the vast majority of people think that they think particularly smart people smart people think that they think
2: well wow, smart people are the most dangerous people <laughs>
1: but the, rea- the reality is the reality is the vast majority of us are on autopilot 99% of the time so the example that you've just given requires it doesn't sound like it but it does require deep thought and reflection, and self-awareness, right? And in that moment, when I'm walking down the street in broad daylight in a suit, and a woman looks up and sees me, clutches her purse and walks across the street, deep thought, self-awareness, and reflection are not what she's doing. This is instinct. This is what have or I Or like
0: conditioning.
1: Yeah. This is system one brain. This is heuristics. I see lion. A lion can eat me. I run away from lion.
2: you just call yourself a lion, Kenyatta? He's well, a lion. He's a lion. Clearly not. King of the
0: jungle.
1: Exactly. But I think <laughs> what that points to is the fundamental question of why does that heuristic exist in the first place? She didn't create that shortcut. My son, who's four, he hasn't established that kind of shortcut yet. In fact, I'm African-American. His mom is British- from Surrey and white as snow, right? So, so in his mind, we're just his parents. He doesn't see anything other than, yeah, yeah. there's, a, there's right. a difference in color that he's finally starting to recognize now. But something happened in the mindset of that woman and in other people who think that way that created that synapse, that created that shortcut. We're not, we're not born with this stuff.
0: Yeah. Can I ask you, so has it been different living in the UK than it was in the US? when it comes to situations like that? And can you tell us the difference?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. My sense is, although there is, in every place that I've ever lived, there has been some level of ism, classism, racism, sexism. In the UK, all those things exist for sure, to varying degrees. But what I would say is because, and I think there's a reason for this. I think the UK, at least in my experience, Has been, I've seen far fewer overt examples of racism compared to and relative to the US. I'm not suggesting for a second it doesn't exist, right? Because lots of people in the UK would disagree with that statement vehemently and they would be correct. What I am saying is, relatively speaking versus the US, it is not, you don't see as much overt racism. It is not tolerated to the same degree examples of people of African descent or people of color being persecuted or harmed here in the UK has been met with swift and immediate reaction. And what's also interesting about the UK is there's some social and cultural dynamics that are very different. So for example, I won't say everyone in the US has guns, but I think I read somewhere recently that there are as many guns in the US as there are humans in the US. In the UK, it's very difficult to get a gun Quite difficult, and the police—the vast majority of police—do not carry weapons. The vast majority. It's very rare that you see a police officer with a firearm. You just don't see it. There are some who carry them, but they have There's special. There's a special grade of police officer that can carry a weapon. The vast majority of police. Yeah, it's even, even.
2: I remember my cousins here uh, in them. the UK saying, "You could like tell by the type of car they have if they're carrying or not."
1: Mm, yeah, I don't you know should, if that's right. You, or. It, you just you just don't see the level of gun crime here because there aren't the the guns are not here and also culturally the UK in my experience again I found to be much more ethnically and culturally diverse in terms of the number of people who are living and working here from different countries all over the UK so you, in the US you might see that in cities like New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Miami and others parts of Texas in the UK. The UK in the city, I, I live in Liverpool now, and I work in Manchester and have traveled all over the UK. It's quite a diverse place. And so things that might get a raised eyebrow in the US, you don't see it here. I mean, look, the editor-in-chief of Vogue in the UK is a black man of African descent. The Vogue in the UK, women of color frequently graced to cover that magazine, even before Edward Ennfield. And it's, it's, it's never considered a thing. It's not even like, oh, hooray, Vogue put a Black person or a person of color on the cover. It's not even a thing. It's normal. Sexiest man in the UK, Idris Elba. It's not even a thing. It's not called out as unique or different. It just is.
0: So I bet that must be in some ways liberating. I don't know if that's the right word, but-
1: Uh, No, you're absolutely right. It is in many ways because I don't have to think about it. My partner, Stephanie, has made it abundantly clear that we will never live in the U.S. because she is fearful of raising our son there. She's like, no, <laughs> it ain't ever going to happen. Yeah. And I empathize and I understand. I don't have to worry. When he gets older and he wants to go for a run or for a bike ride or go here or there, living in the U.K., I won't be nervous about it at all. And I would be. I, I, remember, I remember my parents moved to a neighborhood slightly outside of Charlotte called Matthews, North Carolina, relatively affluent neighborhood, mostly white. And when I would come home from university, I was in school at the time, I would come home from university and because I would have been gone for so long, I didn't really meet the neighbors. When we moved there, I was almost graduating high school. So I, d- I didn't really have a chance to meet the neighbors. i never forget it. I came home, I think it was my sophomore or junior year. I came home and I was home for the summer. And I generally never stayed home that long, two or three months. There was a homeowner association meeting, and my dad asked me to go with him. And I didn't know why. I was kind of annoyed. I didn't want to go. We went to the meeting, and I'm sitting in the back. Everyone, all the people who own homes, they're all kind of chit-chatting about how they get the grass cut, who does great yard work. Are we going to spend a bit more money for this entryway, this kind of thing? And then towards the end of the session, my dad said, guys, could I just introduce you to my son? And I stand up and he says, This is my son. He says, Kenyatta, because he's from the South. And he says, He's here for a few months. He's in school in Florida, but he's gonna be back home with his mom and I. I just wanted you guys to meet him and have the opportunity to say hello. So I thought, okay, that was a bit weird. We left. And on the way home, he asked me, Do you know why I did that? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I thought maybe he was just proud of the fact that I was in school and getting a master's degree, this kind of thing. He said, I want them to recognize and know who you are. So if you're out, they won't call the cops on you. That's why I did it. And that's why <laughs> in this environment in the UK, for all the problems, issues, challenges that every country has, the UK included, I don't have to worry about that at all. I will never have to have that conversation in any neighborhood I live in in the UK, but I would absolutely have to have it in the States.
2: I was going to ask that question to talk. So let's say you and Stephanie and Zion stay in the UK, Europe, not the US. Are you not going to have the talk with your son? Because maybe he'll rebel and want to go to college in the US. And if he doesn't have, I, I think about this a lot. I mean, sure, P&G made an ad about it. But I've asked my, my brother-in-law is black. His son is now eight or nine, my nephew. And it's just like, I think I don't have to have the talk with my daughter. It's a different talk, right? But the talk with a black boy or a black teenager, it's almost like, sorry, the world sucks and I have to have it. Are you not going to have it? Or-
1: yeah, yeah. This is a really interesting conversation because it start, starts to force a person stroke parent to unpick why that talk has to be had in the first place. And do you want to place that burden on your child? Because it is a lot. It's a lot to hand over to a young person, particularly when it may not be necessary to do so. And, and you recognize that the way you feel, you as in myself, Kenyatta Nelson, the way that I feel about a situation is born from my experiences. In the same way, that woman who crossed the street, she wasn't born with that bias. She learned it. It was taught to her. So my, my bias, good, bad, or indifferent about the way that America sees people like me, I was, that was learned. And so then the question I have to struggle with is, do I teach that to my child? just because he is of me and we're not living in the States. I struggle with that, Raman. I really do. And the short answer is I don't know. I I think I probably will, but I need to be very careful about how that happens because I don't want to create in him a burden that's unnecessary. I struggle with it. It's It's a great question. And I have not come to terms with whether or not I'm going to do that.
2: Yeah, just wait till he wants to have his summer backpacking in America. Yeah, you know, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I'm half joking and I'm half serious because if you have the privilege of avoiding it, why not? Because there is it's a precaution we feel like we need to give our children here in America. But if you don't have to and but there's a negative consequence to it
1: yeah, for them. Because you know, because you know, he is the product of two different ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And so trying to say to him, you need to be careful around People who look like your mother, how does that work? I mean, that, that, that's heavy. Yeah. So I think he'll look at me like I'm crazy because he won't have any frame of reference. And so I genuinely, Sharon, you asked me about do I feel differently? I, the genuine empathy that, that I feel and the heartbreak that I feel for people, my peers, my friends who have sons living in the US who will have to have this conversation very difficult and challenging conversations that I may never have to have with my son. I understand that the privilege that I have, it's not lost on me at all. It's heartbreaking to know that I've got phenomenal friends who are having to have conversations with their son or daughter that for me, because of my circumstance and the blessing of however you view it, having moved out of that environment in that country, now living someplace else where those dynamics don't exist in the same way. It's something that I think about a lot.
0: It's interesting. I wonder, I mean, for myself, so we've talked about this. My kids are half Black and half Asian. The Asian part's from me. (laughs) 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 And sometimes I genuinely hope that we will hopefully... That we will get to a point where I won't ever have to have that conversation with them, even though I mean they're getting to an age where it's the oldest one is eight now. So I'm like, okay, how much longer? Or where when does that happen? And
1: yes, yes.
0: And what's interesting is to your point, like you mentioned, how do you tell your son that you're talking about people that look like his mother as the ones that might see him a certain way? And the truth is, I look at my little boys and they are, I mean, they definitely look mixed, but The world is going to see them as being two little black
1: boys. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that—that for me is the—is the bit that in the UK the rush to designate people based on the color of their skin is not as it's, it's definitely there, but again, relatively speaking, the rush to relegate people or put them in boxes, I don't feel it is prevalent compared to the US. Compared to the US, it is what Sharon will really be just kind of a an absolute mind fuck is if you have to have that kind of conversation with your child or I have to do the same with with mine the thought around how much of the conversation is created by the bias that exists in your own mind so as an african american male one of the things that i struggle with and i'm sure your husband will think about this to no end Is how much of what I'm giving my children is a burden that I myself have created because of my view of the world rather than the world's view of me? I mean, I don't even, my head hurts right now just thinking about that. (laughs) And look, some of it will not be perceived, some of it will be absolutely real. I don't want to downplay the fact that prejudice and bias and discrimination and racism exist. They're real things, the real evils we need to manage and help our children manage and navigate through. But I am also wise enough and old enough and aware enough to understand that there is some of this that exists in myself. i say another anecdote. My father, I remember when I was growing up, whenever we would go into a car dealership, for, whether it be for himself or when I was looking for, for cars and I took my dad along with me, he refused to talk to anyone except for the black guy. He just would not do it. His view was, no, no, no. I want to speak to an African American guy in here.
2: Yeah, he would say that outright. Not just he wouldn't say it. He wouldn't say it.
1: He wouldn't say it out loud. He would would actively go seeking the black salesperson. So, so if he was approached by a white salesperson, he would just say, "I'm I'm still looking." He would he would seek to engage, actively seek to engage the African American salesperson. And I, I can remember distinctly thinking as a kid. That's a bit weird. Like why why do you think just because this person has the same skin color as you that they have your best interest at heart? They just want to sell a car. This guy doesn't give a shit. He'll take you for a ride or she'll take you for a ride just as quick or as easy as someone else. And in fact, clearly skin color is not a designation for skill set in selling cars, right? So I found that my father has, well, he had, he doesn't have it anymore, but he had a deep, deep distrust of white people, deep distrust. Now, here's the context. My father was born in 1943 in South Carolina. So my father knew what it was like to not be able to use a restroom, to not be able to sit at a bar, to not get served at a restaurant, to not be able to use a water fountain. This wasn't stuff that he learned in history books. He experienced it.
2: We had another guest, I want to say it was Lulu and we're having this discussion and she's Chinese American about it's easy to judge our parents for their point of view, but something you said, Kenyatta that sticks with me, it comes back to empathy. What is the context that our parents grew up in? And that's what she's, you know, she's talking about some of the issues her father had and that's why he has, it's not that the point of view is right or wrong. It can still be right or wrong, but it's view it through their lens and the frame in which it was built.
1: Yes. Yeah, it goes back to sharing the conversation we were having about the talk. What I am eternally grateful and thankful for is the fact that I was raised in a household where I was encouraged, relatively speaking, to be a free thinker. And I could look back on those moments with my father and think, I understand where his thinking came from. It was born out of experiences that in him created a mindset that was fundamentally wrong. It was in fact, it was more than wrong because in his mind and in his actions, he was doing the exact same thing that he would have demonized any other person for doing to him or anyone who looked like him. But that's the scourge of this kind of thinking. It's infectious, it's cancerous. And that's why that talk, in my mind, particularly now, is such an arduous difficult, challenging thing for me to wrestle to the ground because I need to, in my own head, get clear on how much of this is real versus my perception of the world based on my experience and point of view. And I'm very sensitive about, I don't want to burden my son because I view a parent's job to liberate their children. I don't want him to feel boxed in in any way. Raman are you still there?
2: I was going to say, you've stumped me, Kenyatta. <laughs>
1: I thought I lost you for a second. I didn't know where you did. Well, you actually, <laughs>
2: literally, you literally did lose me. Sorry, my <laughs> silence was. I was just like, "How do I? Where do I?" Yeah. Ah. <laughs> this is why we don't talk anymore. It's time inefficient to
1: talk to you because you're making me think. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're very philosophical. I mean, what you're talking about is very deep truths.
1: It goes back to my interest in human beings and the human condition. I am a simple person that recognizes that things, even when simply articulated, can be very complicated underneath the surface. And I think that goes back to the conversation we had around empathy and around openness. When you oversimplify a situation or a person's point of view that you do that, you do them a disservice, and I don't ever want to be that kind of person. I think there's a reason why people do the things that they do, and there's a reason why people think the way that they think. I genuinely believe in the goodness of humanity. I genuinely do. Things happen to us. We experience things. We learn things that shape and form our opinions and points of views. And in some instances and in some cases, we lose our way. And that's okay. But what all of us need is someone or some people in our lives who recognize that where we are today is the sum total of our experiences and be open and caring and forgiving enough to recognize that. And to lean into individuals, children, people, whoever, parents, and have open and candid conversations. This what's great about this podcast. It encourages challenging thought. And it encourages people to think critically about why they do the things they do or think the way that they think. Look, I genuinely believe that's what's needed. Critical thinking and reflection, such important things to allow oneself to engage in. Did you just solve it?
2: You just solve everything, <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. I'm like Morgan Freeman in that. Oh, show. you did that. I didn't say that. You said that. I'm not the racist. You said that, man. In <laughs> that show called was it called The Universe or something like that? I think it's just if there is a solve, and I don't know if there is one, but if there if there is a solve, I am relatively convinced that it's it starts with being open to other people's points of view.
2: Yeah, yeah, Kenyatta, the, the solution isn't hard. It's doing the work that's hard. Yes. yes. It's, it's the golden rule. I mean, and I don't want to oversimplify, but literally, when you come back to common empathy, common kindness, even common curiosity, but the golden rule. And if you start with that, and you truly internalize it, and you force, you force that against the lizard brain, what we're conditioned to do. Mm, mm. Coming back to your example of the woman clutching her purse and walking across the street in that moment, you're not going to do it. That's hard work. It's difficult work.
1: Yeah. And it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's, un- it's uncomfortable work because it forces you to, to recognize, wait a second, why am I doing this? Does this make sense? How might this person feel that I've just done this to? That's challenging. That's challenging. And And to the point made earlier around, we were trying to, kind of talking about different ways in, different ways of thinking and and doing things. My pop used to say, eight plus one equals nine, but so does five plus four. There's no perfect way or right way. There are lots of different ways to get to things and to solve things and being open to having the conversation and being open to recognizing that my point of view may not only be different than other people's, it might also be incorrect And that doesn't make me silly or stupid or ignorant or not intelligent. It just means that my line of thinking was led me down an incorrect path. And that's okay. That's fine. There's a great quote from the BBC television show called Fleabag. I don't know if you've ever seen it.
2: Heard of it. Wanted to watch it.
1: It's a great great program where she she says she's talking to to the protagonist or antagonist, depending on how you view the show. Uh, is talking to her friend and she's telling a story about how this kid got in trouble for shoving pencils into hamsters which is not a very pleasant thing to think about but then her friend actually defends the kid who got in trouble and says that's the reason why they put erasers on pencils and then and then she says well, what the hell does that mean and her p- response is because people make mistakes it's just a great line it's a great line and i think This idea that you can be comfortable in your flaws, whether that be literal or just in your thinking. Imagine what the world would look like if people didn't double down on being incorrect just because they feared what they would look like. If people were comfortable with saying, you know what, hands up, I got it wrong, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done that. This world would be a different place if people were comfortable with that. And I think, like I said, if there is an answer, it lies in, in recognition that nobody's perfect. People make mistakes and they're allowed to make mistakes. And many of the mistakes that happen that we have or have done, we can turn things around. They're not reflective of who we are fundamentally as people most of the time. And that's what makes me a bit heartened in the whole conversation. Like I said, I genuinely believe in the goodness of people and that people can turn things around.
2: Well, Kenyatta, We've only got a few minutes left, so we have to shift gears. I would be remiss if we did not shift gears to the speed round.
1: Yeah, let's do it. I don't know what that means, but um
0: <laughs> You're about to find out. You're so screwed, buddy.
2: You're so screwed. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> Wrong answer. You fail. Podcast
1: over. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm gonna start. What's one thing about you that no one expects?
1: Oh, God, that I would love to swim with sharks.
0: That you'd love to swim with sharks.
1: That's awesome. I would love to swim with sharks.
0: Have you ever swam with any marine animal, like dolphins or anything?
1: Nothing substantive. I've done like reef snorkeling and this kind of thing. If there was an animal around, I didn't know it which is terrifying.
0: <laughs> it's probably better that way.
2: I'm going to the beach next week. Why'd you put that thought in my head? <laughs> cool. Kenyatta, what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
1: Oh, wow. There's a great book by, I believe his name is Benjamin Zander. I think it's his name. The book is called The Art of Possibilities. I think is the name of the book. I may have gotten the title a little bit wrong but the author or the co-author, because his, he and his wife write the book, but he is a conductor for an orchestra, a philharmonic, I believe it's Boston or Philadelphia. I can't remember the name of the city. But when I was a kid, I played the viola as well as the upright bass. I love music, always have. I DJed for probably 10 years. And so the idea that a guy who is a profession in the context of music and teaches music, music theory, and teaches people how to think by utilizing music, I relate to enormously. And I love the guy because in this book, everyone should read. He, he teaches you and talks with great passion about what changes in your life when you come from a place of abundance, which is why the book is called The Art of Possibilities. It is a, you cannot finish that book and not feel enormously positive in your outlook on life.
0: That's amazing. Awesome. Uh, I like that title. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Oh my gosh. It would have to be, its kind of, one or two things. It's either macaroni and cheese uh-huh, or it's sweet potato pie. Mm. Two um, Southern
0: classics.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, if you get it right, sweet potato pie, I could sit and eat an entire one in one sitting. For me, yeah. Just the thought of it makes me think back to Thanksgivings with grandmother's And aunts and uncles. And my mom had eight brothers and sisters. So her her father was a pastor. And so they don't really believe in contraception, clearly. And so she had lots of siblings. And so the house during Thanksgiving, when I was a kid, either at my grandparents' house or at my parents' house, was always full and everyone cooked. And so for me, that would be it. What's your least favorite food? British food. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you're it, not it, living it, in the it, right place. No, you, 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 even you British people would place. even British people would say that. So that's <laughs> beans on toast, what is that? I know. Yeah,
0: good point. But scones, yum.
1: Okay. Yes. Shepherd's that's, pie. That's a that's a pastry.
0: Okay. Fair.
1: <laughs> I mean, some of the most bland, flavorless food I have ever had in my entire life. But to be fair, my son. Well, he loves a bit of beans on toast. I don't get it at all.
0: <laughs> He's just more proper than you. That's my yeah. that's my yeah, that's theme it, that's for it. today.
1: He is much more sophisticated, <laughs> far more sophisticated.
0: Than exactly. His father. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast?
1: Oh gosh. AOC. I would love to interview her. Oh, yeah. I you are the Okay.
2: Thank you. I love the Barack and Michelle answers. It's cool. You were the first person who said that, and she's one of my answers. Like, yes, yes. Tell me why.
1: I would like to interview her because I, I would be interested in understanding what drives and motivates her because I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet. I would love to unpick that and, and try to pin the tail on that if that makes sense. What's the end game? What are you trying to achieve? What is it that you want out of the role that you play in the broader societal and political backdrop? I think, and maybe the answer is she hasn't come to that conclusion yet because look, everyone goes through different journeys in life. And we've all been told, if you take the Barack Obama example, we've all been told that since a very young age, his motivation was all around kind of bringing people together. He's fundamentally is about the unification of people across class and across color and cultural and ethnic lines. And even in his books, he talks about old DC and how in old DC, they used to just meet for drinks and dinner and hash it out and they would work across party lines. And so you get the sense that he is collaboration is what drives him and hope in the context of that collaboration is what makes him tick. For AOC, I don't know what it is. I would love to try to figure out what is the motivating factor for you.
2: Yeah, she hasn't written a book like Dreams from My Father or something,
1: right? Yeah, and I haven't heard it. I haven't heard her talk with great conviction about what it is she is looking to achieve or the vision she has for the country that she wants to play a singular role in helping them to achieve, helping this country to achieve. So I think she has a point of view there for sure. I just would love to hear it.
2: We're recording this interview in August, but, and you're in the UK, so, but it's worth checking out. In early August, she gave a speech about the treatment of women on the floor of the Congress. Oh, it's, yes. It's worth seeking out that. It's like a 10, 13 minute clip. Don't watch the short one, watch the long one. It is, when it happened, I texted Sharon. I was like, this is fire. Anyway, we're seeing it a little bit in her work and her statements. But when they're raw, I hate to say when she's triggered, because that's the wrong thing. But yeah, she's a fascinating person to me. And I, I agree with your... Maybe I realize more because I'm an American, I'm paying more attention, if that makes well, sense.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I saw some of that speech, not the entire thing. I think it's the one there that you're talking about, where she says... The wives and daughters is a bullshit excuse. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's been interesting about the last several months for me, in particular, as a man an African-American man living in the UK and watching what's happening in the U.S. kind of sort of active spectator role. For sure, I am learning and starting to get underneath the skin of how I feel about and have felt about race relations in the U.S. But interestingly for me, I am starting to also unravel how I think, have felt, continue to feel about relationships between the sexes in the U.S., and what it genuinely means to be a feminist what it means to be in support of the economic social political equality of women and what things i have done in my past or said in my past that were in conflict to that and it that's been a really interesting journey for me as a man to go on i have found it fascinating i've started to my entire instagram feed has been now curated so that i am I can continue this journey of learning in the context of race relations in the history of African-Americans in the U.S. and what it means to be a feminist. And that speech that she gave off the back of what happened to her on the steps was a great example of what I call a, a teachable moment for the country. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about her. She leans into moments when she can expose something, and in doing so, help to open people's minds and perspectives.
2: Last question. You ready? Let's do it. What does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: I think I would have answered that question differently probably an hour ago.
2: If the show <laughs> had a different name?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but the, just, just genuinely, in the context of this conversation and specifically in the context of the chat that Sharon and I had about our children, what for me being a modern minority means is to be a minority in the context of a world that is actively and aggressively seeking to move past the way that it is defined minorities historically. And that's how I would define the modernity part of that definition. It is is we collectively, along with our non-minority friends, we're seeking progression. We're seeking forward thinking and forward momentum and forward movement away from the things that in the past were hindrances to our collective openness, empathy, and our realization of the possibilities of everything that comes with the gift of humanity on this planet at this time. And I think that for me is what it means to be modern minority. It is about being forward-looking while acknowledging what happened in the past, you don't want to you know, write it off because that wouldn't be particularly helpful, but you do want, want to look forward. I think it's a great thing about America. America is a forward-looking nation. People ask me all the time, what's the difference between America and Europe? In my mind, the biggest difference is you can be born in the trash can, literally, and grow up to be one of the most successful and important culturally, societally people on the planet. In America, the dream of that possibility is very real. And people don't really care where you came from. In fact, Americans love an underdog story. And I think as a modern minority, we need to remain focused on the possibility of what that progression means for us and keep people focused on moving forward and not backward.
2: I love that. Me too. Well, Kenyatta, man, I miss talking to you more frequently. (laughs) This has been awesome.
0: Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you.
2: I've been Ramin Segal.
0: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.